Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so we're back today in James's letter. You can flip through Paul's letters, past Hebrews. Here's James. Today's part of the uh, first chapter is printed there on page 9 in your bulletin. A new section. But a theme here you'll recognize from earlier. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, the righteousness that God requires. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. This is the word of the Lord. And, O oh Lord, how we need your work by the Spirit as we hear this text today. Move among us, in Jesus we ask. Amen. Well, you guys know I'm a pastor's kid. <clears throat> and as a pastor now, I have four of my own. So I noticed with great interest the New York Times article on Monday about a man named Abraham Piper. Many of you will know his father, John Piper. I'm sure you've listened to John Piper's sermons, probably read some of his books or at least articles he's written. He's a world-famous, kind of a mega-pastor on the evangelical scene. Abraham is his, one of his younger sons. Abraham is now one of many who call themselves ex-evangelicals. We call ourselves evangelical Christians. Abraham is an ex-evangelical, a former evangelical Christian. He uh, left the faith at 19, converted back to the Christian faith at about four years later, and then eventually left the faith again for good. Now he has created a TikTok in which he just generates videos that basically mock Christianity. And it's exploded. I mean, he's, he's almost got as many followers as his father. Almost a, he started this, this TikTok uh, in, in November, and he's already got like over 900,000 followers, almost a million followers. He's only posted like, he's posted like 300 videos, pretty prolific. As I read the article and I was kind of looking at things, I, I, I noted a couple of things about this man. As I said, he deconverted from Christianity and then kind of reconverted and then deconverted again. And he made an interesting comment during his reconversion period. So between his first and second departures from the faith, when he was kind of back in the church, he, he made an, in, an inter, in an interview, he made an interesting comment. He, he was talking about his first period of leaving the faith, and this is what he said. He said, at first I pretended that my reasoning was high-minded and philosophical, but really I just wanted to drink gallons of cheap sangria and sleep around. I noted something else. In his TikTok videos, he, he eye-rolls the notion that there is some kind of ultimate meaning to human life that is 
predetermined by God. He, he just kind of mocks that whole idea of some meaning of your life that's God's determined. But he doesn't say that nothing matters. This is what he says, quote, you get to pick what. You decide what matters. Lighten up. Get laid. Go bowling. Here's what I'd like to observe about Abraham Piper's story and many others. It really weighs on my heart as a pastor, as you can imagine. Here's my observation. The toughest tests of your Christian faith are not hard questions. They're not intellectual. I mean, there are excellent hard questions about the Christian faith. Really hard questions, good questions. And if you are willing to do some work, you will find that to those hard questions about our faith, there are intellectually satisfying responses, deeply satisfying responses. I know this having studied. I mean, I, I'm a skeptic. I, I have had major questions about the Christian faith, as you can imagine, having lived in it almost 50 years. But there are, there are, there are satisfying responses to those questions. They're not, they're not responses that eliminate all the mystery. They, they don't eliminate the need for some humility and some patience, but they are subs, they're substantial responses, and they're compelling intellectually. But we, uh, we really need to understand the toughest tests of your Christian faith are not going to be the hard questions. They're going to be the hard experiences. That's what's going to really go after your faith. I hear a lot of Christian pastors and parents that seem to have this idea that if you just fill your kids' heads with all the right ideas, you know, catechize them thoroughly, send them to worldview conferences every summer, you're good. You haven't really gotten near enough to the problem, if that's how you think. It is not enough to fill your kids' heads with the right ideas. It's not enough for you to just have the right ideas and all the answers to the questions. If you want your faith, you want your children's faith to be strong and steady, you have got to teach your children how to face trials. What James earlier in this chapter calls various trials, the hard experiences. Because Christians deal with these. I can immediately think of at least four kinds of trials that Christians face. One is just the common sufferings of humanity. We don't get any free pass because we're Jesus people. If there's a hurricane that hits Long Island, guess what? Your house is going down with everybody else's. So there's that. A second trial is bad Christians. Some of the worst treatment I've ever received has been from people who say that Jesus is Lord. And a lot of people have had horrible experiences with Christians. That's a test of your faith. There's a, that's one of the big reasons kids leave the church. A third trial, just opposition. I mean, try being these readers. How fun is it to be a follower of Jesus in like, I don't know, AD 38? It's like a death wish. Talk to people in Iran, North Korea. Hard. How do you stick with it under those conditions? Another, and this is a big one, trial. God will sometimes say no to you. God will say thou shalt not to you. That's a trial. That's an experiential. It's not an intellectual problem. That's an experience problem. God just cut across what I want. He said, I can't have it. And anytime Jesus' lordship in your life, whether he sends you know, bad Christians into your life, whether he sends persecution into your life, whether he just says, thou shalt not in your life, whether you just end up with a disease that's going to kill you, anytime Jesus' lordship crosses my desires, and let's be clear, many of your desires are perfectly legitimate. They're like good desires. You want good things. To want to live, to be healthy, for example, it's good. But when any time Jesus' lordship crosses my desires, that's a trial, that's a test of my faith. 
And so what James is talking about here when he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, it all goes back to a really early Bible story that shapes James's whole letter, but especially these verses, and that, of course, is the story of Genesis 3. Genesis 3, where Eve saw a tree, and she saw the fruit of the tree, and it was pleasant to the eyes, and it was good for food, and it would make you wise. Only one problem, God said, don't eat it. I want to talk about desire for a few minutes and how Genesis 3, that story of temptation, kind of lurks under the surface here. Because on the surface, you know, verse 12 is pretty obvious. James has already in this chapter been talking about being steadfast. You know, it's one thing to be a fair-weather Christian. You know, oh, I've decided to follow Jesus. And then, whap, something happens in your life, and, you know, all the pins start flying out, and your wheels are coming off, and you're just in a hard time, and, you know, you're trudging along, and and you're hurt, and and that's when faith really means something. You know, it's just not that impressive to be a big believer in Jesus. It will never cost you a thing. But it hurts, and it costs, and there's hard times, right? And so James, as a good pastor, he's encouraging these people again, just as he said in verse 2, count it joy when you meet, meet these trials because you know God's testing your faith to make it steadfast. And here he says again, blessed is the one who remains steadfast. He knows the pressure on these people is intense. You know, they were comfortable Jews not that long ago, and now they're Jesus people. And, you know, the Jewish rulers killed Jesus and hate anyone who says he's Lord and Messiah. Their life is hard. The pressure is intense. Quitting would be, it, it would ease the pain. You know, you're not worried about you and your kids being like martyred for following Jesus. He knows they need encouragement. He knows they need a warning. And so he says, blessed is the one who remains steadfast. But I'd like you to hear the echoes of Genesis 3. At the end of verse 12, how does he encourage them? He says, God is taking you through these trials, this crucible, this testing of your faith, because he's going to give you what? What's it say? The one who is steadfast will receive, it's a very interesting, the crown of what? The crown of what? What did sin bring? What did eating that tree bring? It brought death. And he, and he says here that the end of the road for you, the, the crown that God is going to give you, he's going to give you life back. Everything that was lost through sin, God's going to give it all back to you. Not just your physical existence, but all the wonderful blessedness God had in mind for human beings when he made them, that sin just shattered. God's going to give it all back to you. Death itself will eventually even be banished. The full, the full potential of creation is going to be realized. You're going to be ruling it. You're going to be living in the middle of it. God's going to give it all back. The crown is life. Everything death took. But, but, he says in verse 13, That's the good news. Be steadfast. Hang in there. Don't quit. Because God, at the end of that road, you're going to be crowned with life, man. You'll have life along the way, and you will have the fullness of life. But be careful, verse 13. Because when you're in that crucible, when God's got the fire turned up, you're being tested. There is cost to following Jesus. You are going to be tempted. You're going to be really tempted to walk away. You're going to be tempted not to endure. You readers are going to be tempted to just go back to just being Jews who just follow the law, not Jews who follow Jesus. It's going to be so tempting. Just go back. Just stop listening to Jesus. <laughs> I mean, what has he brought into your life but hardship? Stop trusting him. Stop, stop obeying him. Just go back and have things easy again when that temptation comes. And it will. James says, you be careful. You do not blame that temptation on God. 
Be very careful you don't blame that temptation on God. And you guys know what he's talking about. I can't tell you how many times in my life, even in recent memory, I have felt this in my heart. You know, if God didn't make it so hard, it wouldn't be so tempting to quit. <laughs> if God didn't make it so hard, it wouldn't be quite so tempting to quit. I mean, if God just let me sleep around, it wouldn't be so tempting to sleep around, right? Let's get real, Abraham Piper. It's God's constant testing that makes it so hard and you want to stop and just be done with it and have some freedom and have some fun and just have some peace. I mean, at a basic level, when you're in these fires, isn't God the problem? It whispers in your ear. Why do you put, on that, why do you put that fruit on that tree anyway? And then say we can't eat it. Why not make it ugly and you know, dripping with slime and just unattractive and with a big sign that says it'll ruin your life. No, it has to be, why? And it's easy. It's just easy to say the real problem here is that the rules are too hard, the standard's too high, the cost is too great, the trial's too severe. It's interesting in verse 16. We're not really going to deal with that so much today, but it's very interesting that James's response to that is, do not be deceived. Yes, there's a tempter. There is a tempter whispering in your ear. It is not God. It's that old serpent. And then he goes on to say, you need to understand something. And he's very pastoral here. There's a tenderness, but this is, this is strong. That temptation inside of you, I just would like to quit. I'd like it to be easy. I want to go back. I don't want to carry on. I want to give in. He says in verse 14, he says, you need to know that temptation has got one source. It is not God. It's very simple. When you want to walk away from Jesus, you want to walk away from his, just the whole program and just go back to an easy life, there is one source of that temptation deep inside of you. Listen to me, saints. Deep inside of you, you want something. You want something. Everyone is tempted, not by God, but when he is lured and enticed by what he wants, by what he desires. Now, it's interesting, though. He says this desire will lure you. It'll entice you. Now, if you've ever tried to lure a fish or entice a child with a piece of candy, you'll notice that what you're trying to do is take someone away from where they actually are. So there's something you need to notice. We need to be precise here. There's something to notice about this desire inside of you. It's not just the desire. It's a luring desire. It's an enticing desire. It's trying to take you away from where you are. Where are you, saint? What's it trying to pull you away from? Like, what's the desire trying to entice you from? Where are you? You're with Jesus. You're with the living God. Because, see, many desires are not wrong. Many desires are actually totally part of living with God. God made us to want so many good things. And most of them in themselves are not wrong desires, you know? Honestly, wanting food and drink and sleep and sex and pleasure and relationships and, you know, some money and some success and some, you know, various things like this, education and opportunities and justice and, you know, the things we want. These are not, these are not like wicked desires. The fatal step, the fatal step is when any of those desires starts to pull you away from God. 
When you start to trust and obey what you want more than you trust and obey God, that's the fatal step. Nothing wrong with many desires in themselves, but the moment that desire begins, you, I begin to want to trust in that desire and obey that desire and follow that desire more than I want to follow Jesus, that's the fatal thing. That, as my father likes to say, that's the snake in the wood pile. What do we want? What do we want? Let's get specific. James had a fellow pastor in Jerusalem named John. He also wrote a letter, and this is what he said about desires that lure us. He says, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, and now notice this language in light of James's language. The, 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 all that's in the world, and he gives three things. The desire, it's the same word that James uses, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. All that's not from the Father, it's from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, you've got to remember here, because Christians have really abused this verse. There are Christians that say when, Jane, when Jesus and the apostles talk about the world, they're just talking about culture. There's creation, right? There's the stuff that God made, the trees, the rocks, the squirrels, the giraffes, the, you know, water, the uh, mountains, and all that stuff. That's just creation, but then there's stuff people do with creation. They make music, they make microchips, they make automobiles, they make pews, they make carpet, they make clothing, they make, you know, rockets to go to the moon, and so on. Culture, they make paintings, and books, and etc., etc. Netflix, blah, blah, blah. That's culture. It's what people do with creation. And a lot of Christians have this idea that somehow culture in itself is the world. That's actually completely wrong. It's important to pay attention. In, actually, in, in John's gospel, there's some really important material about this I'm not going to go into now. But when Jesus and the apostles speak about the world, they, they actually have something specific in mind. They're referring to the rulers, the dominant powers of that age, that heard Jesus claim to be the Lord and Messiah, and they rejected it, and they killed him. The rulers of that age, the dominant powers of that time, that heard Jesus' claims to be Lord and Messiah, and they said, we will not have this man rule over us. We have no king but Caesar, and they killed him. That was the world system, that system of values, that system of power that opposed the living God and Jesus whom he had sent. That is the, that's the first thing they have in mind when they say the world. And, of course, there are many of those kind of systems throughout history. And what do the rulers in Jesus' time and the James's time, what do those rulers want? What did they want? What were their controlling values? Love of the Father? Love of the one the Father sent? Was that the dominant value in their life? God the Father and Jesus Christ whom he sent and all of the kingdom that Jesus is going to build on earth? Was that what they loved? No. No, John writes, they were driven by the desire of the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life. You can say it this way. They wanted their present life. Thank you very much, Jesus. Keep your hands off it. They wanted their present life with its gratifications, its glamour, and its glory. Everything that feels good and looks good and makes me look good right now. Jesus, don't touch it. This feels good. This looks good. This makes me look good. Keep your hands off, Jesus. That's what they loved. And John says, that's the world and its desires. That's not the love of the Father. That's the love of the world. 
don't love the world and don't love its desires. That whole world's going to pass away. God's going to take the city of Jerusalem and demolish it within 70 years. He's going to take the city of Rome and wipe it into the dustbin of history within a few centuries. God's going to take that whole world out. He who does the will of the Father will abide forever. And we have to look in our hearts, beloved, and realize that lurking in every soul are those exact same desires. The desires to feel good with the body. The desire for stuff that sizzles and, and, and glitters and, and looks sensational. The desire for what you know, exalts you and gives you status and a feeling of pride. That stuff's in my heart. It's in my heart to, I want to feel gratification rather than do the will of the Father sometimes. I just do. There are times I want my eyes dazzled more than I want to do the will of God. Can you say porn? I mean, that's what it is. Lust of the eyes. More than doing the will of the Father. I just, it's in there. So many times, I want to be honored and elevated and feel, you know, all kinds of approval and affirmation more than I want to do the will of God. Is it wrong to want gratification? No. Is it, want, is it wrong to enjoy visual spectacles? No. Is it wrong to want honor and success? No. Is it wrong to want these things more than you want to do the will of God? Yes, it is. And don't blame God when that temptation comes. Like, man, if you just would back off God and just make it easy, it wouldn't be so tempting. No, it's desire. It's Eve. But God, it's good for food. It's pleasant to the eyes. It'll make me like God. Desire is not wrong. Desire that is not submitted to God is the undoing of humanity. And beloved, you know, we're in a society right now that glamorizes and catechizes and, shall I say, monetizes you do you. No one can say no to your choices. No one can tell you you must choose something other than what you would choose. Nobody can do that. If they do, they are oppressing you. That's what our society catechizes. And they make a blazing lot of money off it. Interesting, far back in the roaring 1920s, you know, 100 years ago, President Herbert Hoover said this to corporate advertisers. He said, you have taken corporate advertisers. They've come a long way in the last 100 years. He said to them, you've taken over the job of creating desire and transformed people into constantly moving happiness machines, which have become the key to economic progress. That's what drives the market. You do you. And in that society, we need to help each other really think about how this world that you're waking up in every day, it is just in your bloodstream. It's water, and you're a fish, and you don't even see the water as a fish. We have got to really step back from time to time and ask ourselves, how has this society and its catechism and its monetization of all of this and its constant glamorizing of you do you, how much has that already soaked into us and already shaped our desires? Don't, please, don't think this is going to shape your desires. It already has. It's shaped me. Everyone's lured by his own desire, and the stakes are high because verse 15 goes on. That desire, it's a mother. And when that mother of desire conceives, she'll give birth to sin. And when that baby is full grown, it may take a while, the end will be death. The spawn of unruly desire is sin. We have left undone 
those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. And when that sin grows, it, it will bring death. What is biological death? You know, biological death is just, you, you watch your body dying. This is one of the awesome things about being 46. I'm starting to feel my body dying. It's great. Some of you are like, you are a child. You just have this gradual dysfunction. Things are coming apart. I used to be able, like, you know, someone kicks me a soccer ball. My mind still gets the soccer ball. My feet don't move to get the soccer ball the way they used to. There's this dysfunction. Things stop working as they were designed to do. And eventually, biological death goes way beyond dysfunction. Your body will just disintegrate. In a few decades, you, well, not all of you, some of you, let's say a half century, pretty much all of us are going to be literally rotting underground, eaten by worms. That's the future. That's death. That's death. That's what sin does to you. It's what it does to me. The more we seek what we want apart from God, now please, please, if you hear this message and say something wrong with wanting things, you are, you're missing the point. What is, what is the problem is wanting things apart from God, wanting things apart from his will. And the more you want things and seek what you want apart from God and his purposes for you, the more your mind will disintegrate, your loves will disintegrate, your relationships will disintegrate, your communities, your civilization will disintegrate. We are watching it now. Rather than growing toward strength and toward vitality and harmony and fruitfulness, sin causes things to weaken and decay. You look around in our society now, what do you see? More and more information and less and less wisdom. A distorted and empty sexuality that is just absolutely bottoming people out and, and destroying an entire generation, destroying even the possibility of generations. Painfully thin sociality. Loneliness at epidemic levels, anxiety at epidemic levels, frustration at epidemic levels, social unrest now just seething beneath the surface, numbing economic slavery. Most people on this island are a paycheck away from bankruptcy because of desire, unruly desire. That's what sin does. It brings death. You kill sin or it kills you. How on earth do you do that, man? Because this is where I've got to give you guys and give my heart some grace because this could just bury you. You kill sin or it'll kill you. How do you do that? Well, the only way to kill sin, you've got to go back to the mother. You've got to go back to the root. You've got to go back to the desire. There was a Presbyterian pastor in the 19th century named Thomas Chalmers who, you've heard me quoted a hundred times probably. He, he had a sermon title that I will never, ever forget. His sermon was called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. You can't change desire. You can't drive out desire by trying hard not to desire. This is like, I've, I've talked to guys that are addicted like to pornography and, and, uh, you know, or substances, you know, people that are addicted to substances in whatever form. You cannot sit there and use willpower to, 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 to get out of that. You can't drive out a desire for drink if it's mastered you by just sitting there and you know, trying not to desire drink. You have to drive out desire by the expulsive power of better, stronger, nobler, more glorious desires. And what James is saying as he goes on to talk about the father of lights, which we'll talk about next week, but he's basically saying here, you want to get rid of that deadly mother. You need to go to the father from whom every good gift and every perfect gift comes. 
And you need to spend time with your father. And you need to eat his good gifts and drink his good gifts and delight in what he has put in your life, including even the sufferings, recognizing these are gifts to you. God is loving on you. He took your sin and put it on his son and killed your son as the sacrifice lamb to free you from any more curse, any more death, any more condemnation. You are his child. He has clothed you with the righteousness of his own obedient firstborn son, Jesus. You are his. You are adopted by him. He wants to, and he is determined, and he is committed to giving you his eternal kingdom to rule and reign over with his son, Jesus, forever and ever. That's who you are, and he is loving on you every moment of your life. You say, man, some father. You don't see the goodness, perhaps. You are in the hands of this God. And as you go to him and you lay your heart and your life before him and you eat and you drink of his good gifts, there will come a time as you are enjoying God. You are giving thanks to him. You are worshiping him. You are rolling your burdens on him. You are crying out to him. You are calling upon other brothers and sisters to do this with you, and you are just learning to, to, to contemplate his goodness and celebrate his goodness and cultivate his goodness. And as you taste and see that this Lord, this Father is good, over time what will happen is your heart will be compelled by his love. Your heart will be compelled by his love to love him above all things. God gives the crown of life to those who love him, verse 12 says. You can't love God unless you know how much he loves you. It is love that begets love. It is knowing the love of the Father that calls forth love from us. And as you love God above all things, your heart will seek that life, that abundant life, Jesus said, that life more abundant, that crown of life that he gives to those who love him. You'll find over time, as you are tasting the goodness of the Lord, sometimes just claiming it by faith when it just seems like he's beaten the stuffing out of you. But you come to the Father. We'll talk more about this next week. What you're going to find is your heart's going to start to love what your Father loves. And you know what's really crazy? You know what's really radical about this? Your heart's going to start to love what your Father loves even when it doesn't initially feel good, even when it doesn't initially look good even when it doesn't initially make you look good, when it doesn't necessarily tickle the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the, the pride of life, you're going to start, for example, as we'll see in a little while in this chapter, you're going to start to be very, very much into the well-being of widows and orphans. Like, that's when you know that the love of your father is really working in you, and all of a sudden, it's not about you anymore. You start being interested in, like, how, how's that widow doing? How's that orphan doing? People that can't give anything back. That's not about the desires of the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life. That's about the, the Jesus way, giving your life for people who can't give back. You're going to start, we'll see later in the book, you're going to start being more interested in winning over than in winning. We'll get into all that in chapter 3. Your heart, as you love the Father and start to love what he loves, you're going to be more interested in winning over your brother, your sister, than winning this competitive posture toward our brothers and sisters. You're going to start loving the glory of God more than your own glory. God will form those loves in you. You know, I'm just going to say this as a castaway comment. You really want to change the world? I hear more Christians talking about, you know, how we need to change the world. You really want to change the world? Build some institutions that form desires like that. Build some institutions that form desires that reflect the heart of the Father and that really get specific about exposing the desires of the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life 
that are trying to operate independent of the Father. I'm going to close with this. There's real truth in that old saying. I, it's attributed to Augustine. Love God and then do what you want. There's a lot of truth in that. Notice the order. Love God, then do what you want. Because what you'll find is if you love God above all, how are you going to do that? Because he loves you. You just let that love wash over you. And as you love God above all things, you'll gradually learn how to love everything else well. If you love God, you'll start figuring out how to love people. You love God, you'll start figuring out how to love creation. You love God, you're going to start figuring out how to love everything that he calls you to love. But the flip side of the coin is also true. You love anything more than God, you're not only eventually going to cease to love that thing, you'll stop loving everything else too. Maybe not until you are eternally separated from him. But that's the end of the road. Absolute lovelessness. If you don't love God more than anything else. C.S. Lewis put it brilliantly, and with this we'll close. He said, every preference of a small good to a great good, every preference of a partial good to a total good, involves the loss of the small or partial that small or partial good for which the sacrifice is made? Did you hear what he said? Every preference of a small good to a greater good, every preference of a partial good to a total good, eventually involves the loss of that small or partial good for which you've sacrificed. Apparently the world's made that way. You can't get second things by putting them first. You can get second things only by putting first things first. Love God then do what you want. Amen. We pray, Lord our God, our Father, from, from whom every good gift comes, that you will form this love in us and so keep us from temptation. In Jesus we pray. Amen.